Trump administration puts the brakes on the White House task force and then reverses course. The world's biggest economies brace for a long-term economic downturn, and the poor struggle most. According to a survey of moms, one in five kids aren't getting enough to eat. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Elsay. My parents immigrated from Egypt, where I'd spend many of my childhood summers, getting on a plane just after school ended in June and coming back right before it started in late August. In those 15 hours, I would travel different worlds apart. The sights, the sounds, the smells couldn't be more different in the working-class neighborhood in Egypt than in my sleepy 90s-era suburb of Detroit. Health differed, too. A lot. Egyptian life expectancy lags the U.S. by nearly a decade. And that's because of infectious diseases. Things like tuberculosis, typhoid, and yellow fever. Egypt is a middle-income country one of many countries in the world where deaths to infectious diseases are commonplace. Thankfully, before COVID-19 at least, few of us have experienced the loss of somebody because of an infectious disease. And as I studied medicine and epidemiology, I came to appreciate just how uncommon death to infectious diseases have become in high-income countries like the U.S., Europe, and parts of East Asia. And that's why, before 2020, had you told me that at some point, the U.S. would lead the world in deaths from a serious infectious disease, I wouldn't have believed you. And history, for the most part, would have proven me right. Though SARS came to the U.S. in 2003, it was contained and eliminated. In 2014, there were fears that Ebola would spread in the U.S., but again, our public health infrastructure was not only able to contain it, but was largely responsible for coordinating the global response in West Africa as well. And yet, in 2020, here we are. Coronavirus has killed more than 70,000 people in the United States, less than a week after passing 60,000 U.S. deaths on Wednesday. Though it's astounding, it has its own kind of perverse logic. And it can teach us a lot of lessons, if we're willing to learn them. Here are three in particular. First, there is nothing magical about the divide between high-income countries like the United States and lower- and middle-income countries like my father's Egypt. It's not like infectious diseases just die as they cross our borders. The difference was that we in high-income countries both had the means and the will to invest in collective public action to take on infectious diseases. Whether that meant building effective water purification systems or investing in our public health workforce, when we stop doing those things, when we leave people vulnerable, well, they're just as vulnerable as anyone else, high-income country or not. After all, our physiology is the same. It was our politics and economics that differed. And if our politics and economics, in terms of corruption and cronyism and inequality, start to resemble middle- and low-income countries, our public health will too. Second, we live in a truly global world. There are thousands of flights crossing international borders every day. Trade routes crisscross the globe. We ignore what is happening abroad at our own peril. Global partnerships and institutions, like the WHO, are critical to that work. But then there's this. The World Health Organization should be ashamed of themselves because they're like the public relations agency for China. America first hasn't worked out so well for us. What would our situation be if our leadership wasn't so fixated on riling up animosity for China? What would it be if we had worked with the WHO and the Chinese government to help tackle COVID-19 before it spread onto our shores? Third, as the richest and most powerful country in the world, we still have a responsibility to fight infectious diseases abroad even as we suffer them here at home. This is both a matter of moral responsibility and good public health. 
Consider Ebola. Our government understood that fighting Ebola abroad was both the right thing to do on its own terms, but also the best way to make sure it didn't take hold here at home. So we committed our resources to fighting it abroad. We'll be talking to two people who were instrumental in that fight next week. But for the rest of this episode, I want to think about how our sisters and brothers in humanity are experiencing COVID-19 and what we can do to help. As painful as this has been in the U.S., as many lives that have been lost, I want you to think about what it would be like to face this in a refugee camp without running water, or a crowded slum, or a war-torn nation where the electrical infrastructure was bombed out years ago. In the U.S., we talk about a ventilator shortage at our hospitals, but what about communities with no hospitals at all? My guests today are folks whose work is focused on fighting infectious diseases abroad. First, we'll talk to Usama Mizwi, president and CEO of Penny Appeal USA, an international charity leading the fight for COVID-19 relief abroad. Then we'll talk to Marith Basie, executive director of Universities Allied for Essential Medicines in North America, about their work to make sure that treatments and vaccines for COVID-19 are accessible and affordable in low-income countries. Joining us today is Usama Mezwi. He's the president and CEO of Penny Appeal USA, an organization that has dedicated the last couple of months and, and the next few to global COVID relief. And um, uh, Usama also happens to be my best friend. So uh, it's, it's fun to, uh, to, to make worlds meet. Uh, Usama, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Abdul, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, want to talk through uh, what the, 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 the challenges um, that you are hearing from, uh, from your sites on the ground uh, in, in different parts of the world. How is COVID-19 hitting um, the, the, the rest of the world? You know, I think for the listeners, uh, COVID-19 has impacted every aspect of their life. And that's really no different for us in the nonprofit world. Um, it's so hard to kind of prioritize, um, whether it's on the work front, whether it's on the poverty eradication front, access to food, access to healthcare, whether it's our ability as nonprofit to do the work that we do, um, really every dimension of our work in, in fighting poverty and in the poverty eradication space uh, has been impacted. Um, of course, the extent, the severity of the impact, it will take time for us to know that. Um, but looking at initial studies that are coming out, we are really worried about not just the short-term consequences, but actually the long-term consequences on poverty eradication. Um, the World Bank recently came out with a study which shows that 24 million people um, will now not be escaping poverty as a consequence of coronavirus. These are 24 million people that we were hoping would escape poverty are now going to be taken aback because of coronavirus. And that's because mostly of the catastrophic impact on industries, things like the impact on tourism, manufacturing, um, and, and, and the importance that these industries play in, in middle-income and low-income households, uh, sorry, nations, low-income nations. So as we think about um, why this is happening, how much of it do you feel like has to do with uh, lack of resources now and how much of it has to do with you know, frankly, failures of government. Of course, uh, our own government hasn't um, hasn't done the best job, as, as we've well documented on this podcast. Uh, but um, but other other uh, governments abroad who have you know maybe incentives to to fudge their numbers, to um, maybe slow their response, who don't have the same kind of connections into the deepest parts of their countries. Um, how much of this is about just basic lack of resources? How much of this is about uh, government failure? 
it's really all of the above. It's, it's look, the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, are really the guiding um, blueprint for us as, as a non-profit uh, and one that fights poverty. Now, the world got together, agreed the Sustainable Development Goals, and the aim was, of course, to achieve these by the year 2030. Part of the Sustainable Development Goals, goal number three, is achieving universal health coverage. Now, um, this is a systemic problem. It goes back many, many decades. It has roots, of course, in colonialism, roots in uh, the unfair distribution of wealth. But this is one of the major goals that we have to achieve if we are serious about eradicating poverty and e inequality by the year 2030. So a lack of access to healthcare has been a systemic issue, and it's pre-COVID-19. Uh, but just imagine what that means in a world of COVID where people, vulnerable communities, are not getting access to uh, healthcare. Now, it's, very, it's essentially systemic. There is a lack of infrastructure. There is a lack of healthcare infrastructure. There's a lack of physicians. There's a lack of healthcare practitioners in many of the countries where we operate. And I think it's worth, uh, you know, for the viewers to know where we're working. So we work in uh, around 30 countries at the moment around the world. Uh, in some of those countries, we have our own field offices. So in Pakistan, for example, in South Africa, in Bangladesh, in Jerusalem, in Gambia. So this is where we have a, a, our own infrastructure. But we also work in many others through partners. And what we're seeing there is that this long-term systemic issue of a lack of infrastructure, a lack of healthcare professionals, is now having even more dire consequences. Um, and these are for what we call established communities. Think, Abdul, about vulnerable communities. Think about um, IDPs, internally displaced people. Think about refugees. Um, so these are people already facing quite catastrophic humanitarian issues and, and consequences due to war, due to conflict. Uh, of course, many of the world's migrants today are due to climate change, right? One of the biggest factors pushing migration is climate change. But So when you look at these vulnerable communities, well, what does hygiene practice look like if there's no running water, right? You know, washing your hands, preventative care that we talk about. What does that look like in a refugee camp? What does that look like for a community that's constantly moving? Um, and so, again, we've got these systemic problems. I think there's a lack of universal healthcare access because of a lack of infrastructure. Why is the question? Why do we have a lack of infrastructure? Well, a lot of that is, of course, policy and it's political, right? How do governments assign budgets? What is the role of, quite frankly, global organizations like the IMF and the World Bank and others when it comes to restructuring, when it comes to loan repayments, right? The way that we write some of these uh, loans in the first place is problematic. And then we have, of course, one of the major obstacles to poverty eradication is corruption. What we see in many, too many of the countries that we work in is government corruption takes money away from healthcare uh, into people's pockets. Um, so these are systemic problems. Of course, COVID-19 is, 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 you know, uh, absolutely here in the US and internationally. One of the one of the topics that we've covered quite a bit is just that it is a privilege to be able to socially distance in the US. Um, and, you know, for all of the frustration that we have of being shut into our homes or having to um, homeschool our kids via the internet, one of the things that you're really uh, rightly pointing to is the fact that for folks all over the world, there is absolutely no way to do that, right? So you think about what are the impacts on a kid's education when there is no internet 
uh, in a community, and um, that that kid's lifeline of a of school uh, has to get shut down. What are the impacts in your community where you know you live in a shanty town and um, there is just no way to just shut yourself in your home? Uh, or you know think about the runs on food and the impacts um, you know in terms of migrant workers, for example, in India, many of whom starved to death because of COVID nineteen. Uh, these are really really important points. I want to ask you a little bit about your work um, in 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 different communities across the world. Can you give us a flavor of um, some of what uh, the response has been uh, that that you guys are working on? Um, a lot of our work is providing protective equipment uh, to hospitals in Gaza, in Palestine, and healthcare workers in Gaza. We're working with eight uh, different health facilities in northern Syria, in Aleppo, providing them with testing equipment, providing them with protective uh, PPE. Um, In Mozambique, we are working again in quarantine centers, making sure that we're training individuals on preventative measures, on hygiene measures, but also providing uh, essential equipment. We're in Syria, also in the camps, Again, working with uh, camp authorities, making sure how do we help in the uh, prevention of the spread of the disease through uh, teaching best practices in terms of hygiene and preventative measures, but also providing uh, PPE. And also, actually, food is so essential because a lot of these communities, Abdul, before COVID, were relying on food handouts pre-COVID. I mean, COVID has just, you know, like we've said, compounded the issue. And so the food distributions have continued. Uh, They've accelerated. Um, So we're currently in seven countries. We're working in the U.S., of course, but also in Syria, in Palestine, in Mozambique, in Uganda, in South Africa. Um, And the global family as well, Penny Appeal, is part of a global uh, organization. And so we're seeing the same work happen in the United Kingdom, uh, here across the border in Canada, in Australia. Um, It's really food, PPE, cash assistance, and then uh, advocacy on preventative measures. Can you um, can you tell us where listeners can go if they'd like to if they'd like to donate? Uh, those listening, I do encourage you to visit launchgood.com forward slash global response. So that's one word: launchgood.com slash global response, and that should take you to Abdul's fundraiser. Those uh, the money raised is going to the international response, and again. W- is essential in Syria, in Palestine, and and a few of the sub-Saharan countries we're operating in at the moment. Uh, Usama, I really, really appreciate uh, you and your work and and um, you sharing it with us. And uh, my best to uh, to Maya, who's a doctor on the front lines as well. Thank you. All right. Well, my guest today is Marith Basie. She's the executive director of Universities Allied for Essential Medicines in North America. Marith, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to um I want to just jump right in because you know we we've had in the United States one of the world's worst COVID hotspots. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about what the contours of COVID nineteen look like in middle and low income countries abroad versus what it's feeling like here in the U.S. or uh, even in Europe? Sure, absolutely. And I should preface this by saying that we. The organization I work for, Universities Allied for Essential Medicine, has students who are organizing to make um, medicine affordable, uh, publicly funded medicine in more than 20 different countries around the world, including Brazil, South Korea, uh, and all over Europe as well. So we have some different uh, experiences to pull from. Um, And I think what we're seeing is there's some vast 
differences in terms of healthcare systems, leadership, even science denial, sadly. So we're seeing in Brazil and also similarly at the start of the pandemic here in, in the United States, um, a lack of decisive action um, has had massive repercussions um, in terms of the number of cases that we're seeing. Right now in Brazil, uh, I think we're seeing the number, the, the largest increase in the number of deaths on a daily basis. And, and you can compare what's happening in US to Brazil and vice versa just based on on the confusion and myths that were circulating in the beginning compared to say somewhere like South Korea where uh, there wasn't a massive lockdown but there was a huge, they were very uh, impacted by the disease and around the same time they, as the US we had um, their first cases but they used a very different approach. They were using contact traces and they were uh, tracing and they were also um, testing at a rate of three times compared to the US. So we're seeing those differences play out now because South Korea, for example, has been able to uh, flatten the curve. And then you, know, you see other countries like New Zealand, which wasn't particularly impacted, but they made massive uh, uh, decisive um, action was taken by the, by the prime minister. Uh, and what we've seen as a result is um, they also were able to flatten the curve, even though um, perhaps the, the measures look very different there to, to South Korea or in parts of Europe. Germany, for example, took a very um, serious approach. They, they were upfront um, from the beginning that this was going to be a serious problem, uh, and they took action. And I think um, those early decisions um, have made all the difference. But I think what we're seeing across countries is that really the poorest people, people of color, are really being hit the hardest. And the, I know these are topics you've uh, discussed here in, in the United States on, on this show. And the other thing that's really clear is I think that um, we're seeing that it's really the floor and not the ceiling of the healthcare systems that is dictating health outcomes for the majority. So if you're excluding people, like here in the United States, um, because of immigration status or because of simply because of cost or lack of coverage insurance status um, that's preventing people from accessing um, services which is what what we need also to be able to prevent the spread yeah and you're hitting on something really um, really critical which is the idea that you know because this is an infectious disease um, we as a society are as exposed as the most exposed people um, where our responses miss the responsibility to care for our most vulnerable and most exposed um, it leaves the the, the, the disease uh, present and in, in spreading uh, amongst us. Exactly, exactly. And you mentioned like low and middle income countries, and I think there's a lot of different things at play here from systemic challenges, right? So even pre-COVID, um, about 10 million people die annually from a lack of access to medicines worldwide, which is massive. So if you have that as a starting point, you know, that may be initial access challenges, but it's also because we have, the United States has exported a, a patent system that ensures the pr those prices stay high in low and middle income countries, right? So there's a long history of this um, in the access to medicines movement, you know, starting with, with, with HIV, right, 20, 20 plus years ago. Um, medicines that were available here 
in the United States were not accessible where the burden of disease was in South Africa. And even though Doctors Without Borders were looking to treat people living with HIV for the first time, they recognized that um, you know, a drug that has been developed in the US with taxpayer dollars um, at a university at Yale um, was, was part of the problem. And so uh, the students organized, uh, this is how UAM started actually, and they were able to convince the university to change the patent, uh, to change the license, sorry, with a massive pharmaceutical corporation, which led to the um, South Africa being able to legally import a generic version of the drug into the country. And I think these, for the last 20 years, like organizations have been fighting to, to ensure access in these, uh, in low and middle income countries, but this is still a problem that we haven't resolved and it's come home to roost here in the United States as well, because we're seeing these massive uh, high prices and people being unable to afford their medicines, which is now one in three people in this country. And I'm sure after the, you know, what's happening here with unemployment and um, lack of access to services, uh, that number is going to rise. I do want to ask, let, let's think a little bit about just um, before we get to the, the question of treatment, what, what are the what are the contours of the way that COVID-19 moves on the ground in communities without the same kind of robust uh, public health and healthcare infrastructure um, as we sometimes take for granted in, in, in high-income countries? Yeah, so it's a massive privilege right now that you and I can, can sit at home and access internet and information from, the, from our homes, right? We can social distance. But if you're in a favela in Brazil, social distancing is going to be almost impossible and you have a number of people maybe living in a room or a couple of rooms like access to running water uh, that is a major challenge um, how are you going to be telling people to wash their hands multiple times a day um, and you know two million people in the US also don't have access to running water so there, there are these similarities as well for different reasons of course um, but I, I think those those are where these um, this is going to play out for uh, the poorest in every country around the world. And, and we're seeing that increasingly um, globally. But one other thing that we have, there's not enough data yet in, from Africa uh, or different parts of Africa, but uh, there are some suggestions that because of a, it being a generally younger population, so that medium age um, in the region is around 20 years old compared to, say, 40 in Europe, that may be something that hopefully works in in favor of um, how how COVID might might devastate communities. So we don't know yet. It's far too early to say, and there hasn't been enough testing. Um, but uh, those are some suggestions that 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 people are talking about. So as we think about um, new treatments and vaccines being developed, you know, you think about remdesivir, for example, that just got a, a clearance from the FDA. Um, what is the risk that uh, they don't get to heavily affected communities uh, in lower and, and middle income countries? I think the risk is super high. I mean, that, that is the biggest concern. Um, and as I mentioned, that this is the work of the access to medicines community for more than 20 years, basically, to try to ensure that um, medicines could get access to the people they need it in 
um, not just in the United States, but internationally. And we uh, at UAM, in partnership with another group called the Center for Artistic Activism, have recently launched the Free the Vaccine campaign for this exact reason. And the goal of the campaign is for um, publicly funded diagnostics, treatments, and the eventual vaccine or vaccines uh, should be sustainably priced, available to all, and free at the point of delivery. And what that means is like sustainably priced, meaning governments are not going to be price couched for the, uh, the eventual product. Because we don't say free because we know that we've already invested millions of taxpayer dollars through NIH grants or you know, CIHR grants in Canada, it depends where you are in the world, to pay for this up front. So um, there's that piece, I think, also available to all, again, regardless of immigration status, regard regardless of insurance status, because these are the folks we need to make sure we are covering, uh, if it were in this country, for example, and free at the point of delivery to make sure that people are not paying again, because we don't want that to be a barrier to access. Like $10 may not sound a lot, um, to you or me, but when you're looking at people who are living on less than one dollar a day, that, that, that is a barrier. Uh, and these are likely to be people who are at most at risk. And I think the other challenge we're seeing is around sort of these nationalistic responses of high-income countries, right? So we need this to be a global response. It needs to be a response of sort of solidarity and collaboration. It can't be a country-by-country -country response in a pandemic that is of this size. You raise a really interesting point here because um, one of the deep frustrations in both the way that this pandemic, you know, got through the cracks and has been dealt with is that we've seen, uh, you know, the, the richest, most powerful countries of the world resort to this sort of carnal nationalism um, that has really complicated the ability for international organizations uh, for whom a lot of the responsibility sits to work on these issues um, sort of fall apart. And, you know, just recently, the, the President of the United States uh, declared that, that he was going to stop funding for the World Health Organization. How has that um, nationalism uh, sort of shaped the responses and the challenges for lower and middle, and middle income countries? I mean, it, it's a huge concern. And it's going to feed the social inequalities or inequities of marginalized communities everywhere. That's, it's, it's, it, and it and it's it's not going to solve the problem, right? America first, Germany first, UK first. Um, squandering those in initial precious first doses of a vaccine when we eventually get one, we hope, um, on people who are lower risk is not going to be the quickest way to flatten the curve globally. Like we know that, so we need a coordinated global effort. Um, and that's why not funding a group like the WHO is, is an extraordinary move uh, in this unique moment where we need uh, that leadership more than ever, um, and especially uh, from the United States of America that has such a key role um, in all of this. Can, can you tell us what we can learn from some of the response in lower and middle income communities that that we could port here that may improve um, how we've dealt with uh, COVID-19 or could be ready for the next pandemic? I think, I mean, there's, there's always, I, I think in global health, 
historically it has been about sort of high income country to low and middle income country but I think that that has shifted the sort of colonial era um, is 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 no longer and I think uh, there are there are groups like um, the Drugs for Neglected Disease Initiative, DNDI, who are coordinating um, scientists and individuals at universities all around the world, uh, including in a lot of low and middle income countries, to think about how uh, they can respond to, to this. And, and are also driving a lot of research. This is no longer just, you know, America first, as I mentioned. This is about um, a global pandemic. And I think um, working together with, um, let's see, the, the principles of what an alternative biomedical R&D system could look like is critical here. So like openness, transparency, collaboration. If we're sharing data, um, we're going to get to solutions much quicker. We know that in science, right? Um, publishing clinical trials wherever they are in the world, we need to be doing that. Uh, globally, we know that one in two are not published and they should be registered and reported because otherwise we only have half of that information. And now more than ever, we need to know what is happening in a lab in China um, about uh, how far they're advancing. And so we, I think this lays a, the framework for the potential for a new way of um, developing uh, medicines to uh, ensure that ultimately uh, the people who need them the most get them first, but also that we're working in a way that prioritizes health needs, that puts people first rather than shareholder profit. And I think that's where the struggle has come for us because we saw pandemics before this one. They just didn't happen to get to the shores of America, really, um, or Europe. You know, just a few cases of people who'd been working, say, to respond to the Ebola crisis. But like, we are going to keep living this reality if we don't address the core problem, which is that the biomedical R&D system is, um, is, is not working uh, in the way that we anticipated or hoped that it would work. So I think there's a lot to be learned um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a unique moment to, 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 for change, I think, in the end. Um, tell us, we, we ask everybody, how are you spending these days? Uh, good question. So apart from a lot of my time working on Free the Vaccine, uh, yeah, it's, uh, that is definitely the focus of my hours. But um, one of my favorite things to do is um, it's a dance class. It's very inclusive. It's called 305 Fitness. And uh, they've had to shift everything online. So now you just uh, a couple of times a day, they have a, a live class and uh, it's it's uh, yeah you can go on YouTube for it but it's it's keeping me sane I feel like dance is the solution to a lot of uh, <laughs> stress and anxiety for a lot of people you know well um, really really appreciate you uh, sharing your work um, and your perspective and grateful for your advocacy and leadership and um, thank you for joining the podcast today I really appreciate it thank you so much Abdul and take care and stay safe here's what I'm watching right now. States are starting to, quote-unquote, open up their economies, even as transmission and death rates look to be increasing. But how bad will it get? And will we be forced into yet another round of social distancing? I've teamed up with Penny Appeal USA for a Ramadan fundraiser to support global COVID-19 relief efforts abroad. All donations go to support relief efforts. If you'd like to support, you can donate at launchgood.com slash global response. 
That's launchgrid.com slash global response. And of course, don't forget, you can always donate to Crooked Media's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com slash coronavirus. We'll see you on Tuesday with another update. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Stephen Hoffman is our senior producer. Charlotte Landis mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra and Sydney Rapp. The theme song is by Takia Suzawa and Alex Uguera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geismer. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. Thanks for listening.